0: From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University, I'm Chris Beam.
1: I'm Candace Watts-Smith. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. This week, we are talking with John Iceland and Eric Silver. Uh, both are professors in the Department of Sociology and Criminology here at Penn State. And they are the co-author with Alana Redstone of the University of Illinois, of a book called Why We Disagree About Inequality. And this is one of those books where the title really says it all. uh, And the, the framework or the reason that they propose for why we have these disagreements is a conflict between social justice and social order. And this is something that we've talked about in different capacities on the show before, but I don't think that we've ever really taken a dive as directly on these two approaches to how you view the world, political and otherwise, and why they so often come into conflict.
2: It,
0: it's an it's an issue that has some pretty thick research elements to it, but it's also incredibly timely, right? Because um, no one is disputing that uh, political argument seems particularly fruitless right now, and not to mention ugly, and just serves to kind of drive us farther apart. And the, their book is is trying to say, you know, this is what's going on, and this is what we do about it, right? And so this, you, you know, you, you laid it out well, Jenna, there's this, there are these two fundamental kind of orientations to um, how human beings approach these policy questions and it's social order and social justice and you know we'll, we can let them kind of describe them in in the interview but you know the the point is that these intuitions are they call them strong and relatively stable and so it's kind of like a way that you perceive the world in in a very basic sense it's kind of like this is part of your wiring and um and anyway, uh, that's that is the right way, they say, for us to kind of understand why it is we disagree so much. And then, you know, then they get on to what we do about
2: it. So I would say that this book also kind of its contribution is that it adds to, you know, a conversation where we usually would talk about left or right, Democrat, Republican conservative, liberal. And it, it it layers on this notion that perhaps even among those kind of divisions, we might think about people's perspectives of the world, um, use the word orientation. And on some level, it seeks to help us to understand why we see so much affective polarization and polarization generally. I think the argument here is that on some level, people are talking past each other, mm-hmm. in part because they have different values that some people, you know, ostensibly value social justice, while others value social order. You know, I, I, I'm not sure that I see this as a, a, so cut and dry, but I think it's an important contribution in the discussion about how we got to where we are today.
0: Yeah, I think they don't want to get tied down to a, you know, a cut and dried answer of like, you know, is this hardwired? Is it is it social? does it depend on circumstances? I think they kind of want to say yes to all that. But um, the one point that that I think is key for them is that a society works better not only when both of these perspectives perspectives are operative, but when each side respects. The inherent wisdom of the other side, and not to say that you know you're not going to fight about it, but um, but the argument is that you know y- it is not good for a society to have either all one or all the other because it's going to end up being either an unjust or or um, unfree or insufficiently free, insufficiently just side.
2: The contribution then is something that kind of reminds me of something that Kimberly Crenshaw talked about is that it is difficult to pinpoint a problem or pinpoint a phenomenon if we don't have a name for it. And so here, what they make an effort to do is to give us a name for this kind of these two these two basic intuitions around how we should move forward and what our, how we should think about policy and their effects for our, the, the way we, we live among each other. And so for that reason to say, I, I think it's really interesting that you can look at some number of arguments around racial issues or tr- perhaps transgender issues or sexism and racism, like all of the things. And you can think, okay, well, what is, how is this person coming at this? And maybe one of the ways that they're coming at this is through a lens of social justice or through a lens of social order. And perhaps putting it that way, giving the label, then allows us to have a more constructive conversation about perspectives.
1: Yeah. And I I think, as you said, we'll hear more from John and from Eric about how they define social order and social justice and also how these sort of core belief sets impact the media that people choose to consume and and how they really impact the other aspects of our political lives. So let's go now to the interview with John Iceland and Eric Silver. John Iceland and Eric Silver, welcome to Democracy Works. Thanks for joining us today.
3: Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you.
1: So I'm um, excited to talk with you about your new book, Why We Disagree About Inequality. And I think we'll just start with some definitions, uh, dive right in. I'll start with you, John, if that's OK. The whole book is, is based around this um, social order and social justice framework. I wonder if you could just tell us what that is. You know, listeners may have some notion of, of what those things represent from how those terms are thrown around in the, in the media. But from your perspective, uh, what do those things mean and, and how do they fit together in your framing?
4: Sure. We see these as a distillation of moral and philosophical values that are often in conflict, um, if not in tension with each other. Essentially, uh, social justice is uh, caring for the vulnerable and freeing them from oppression, whereas uh, social order balances these concerns with social cohesion and social stability. So for those from the social order perspective, they think that these things are necessary for a prosperous society.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and Eric, in, in the, the media and, and other places, these notions of social order and social justice are often mapped onto the political spectrum with social justice being associated more with the left and social order being associated with the right. But in the book, you're clear to say that it's not always as cut and dry as that.
3: Right. So the social justice side tends to emphasize, as John said, the uh, concern for the well-being of individuals, in particular the weak and the vulnerable. And that's a widely shared moral concern. Even those on the uh, on the right, or who, what you might think of as having a social order concern, also care about people, right? And they're all uh, – they have families and they have friends and people are important to them. But they balance that concern against the concern for the order and cohesion of groups, and they have an intuitive sense that – order is important for the flourishing of individuals. And so that's one of the places where the, these two perspectives uh, diverge and uh, end up you know, in conflict with each other and often talking past each other, failing to recognize that they have some significant overlap in their concerns.
1: Mm-hmm. And we'll definitely get more into that as, as we go here. Um, but I wonder if you could talk about the origins of the, this framework and, and how you kind of came to think that oh wow this i'm picturing like a, a a light bulb moment for one or both of you like oh this is the thing that explains so many of these conflicts that we we have in our society so i wonder if you could talk more about you know, how how you arrived at it. And of course, I know it builds on the work of scholars like Jonathan Haidt and, and others. But um, yeah, tell us about how, how you arrived at this framework.
4: Sure. Well, I think we see this in general, uh, that it, this balancing act between social justice and social order is not just a contemporary kind of problem that we're facing in the U.S. today, but it's something that we see in other societies. I think we've seen it uh, historically, there are a number of people who've written about uh, some of this uh, tension. As you mentioned, uh, Jonathan Haidt, uh, Thomas Sowell uh, talked about the conflict of visions, as as he termed them. Uh, but it's about people through history being concerned about again freeing people from oppression, c- caring for those who need help, versus uh, the concern for social stability and cohesion. This is a constant tension uh, through history. And at different times in history, sometimes uh, we have a little more social order and we could use a lot more social justice. And other times, perhaps it's something where we need a, you know, vice versa. Mm -hmm.
3: Yeah. And John has it right uh, as far as what we're concerned with. And the terms social order and social justice uh, did come to us as a sort of aha in the sense that the balance between the ideas is captured in the terms and that they're terms that are easy to grasp, that you don't have to hear them or get them explained before you understand what they mean. And they are more evocative even than left and right or other terms that academics have used to describe this this kind of uh, polarity in people's beliefs. And so part of our goal here is to get these terms out into our field and maybe beyond because we think that they are a nice heuristic for describing a lot of what's going on in terms of polarization out in the world.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and, and speaking of, of polarization, I, I know the two of you are not political scientists by training, so this question might not be in your wheelhouse. Tell me if it's not. But I'm thinking about uh, you know the, the work in political science to suggest that affective polarization or, or the degree of animosity we feel toward people who hold differing beliefs than us uh, has been on the rise for at least the last decade, if if not longer, depending on, on who you ask. Um, I, I wonder if how that might play in here. So at times when the there's more space or more distance between social order and social justice, is that when affective polarization rise or, or, or would you correlate these things at all?
4: Yeah, I mean, I would say Certainly, this book came about because we see this growing polarization and we saw saw an urgency to try to talk about it, to understand it. And from our perspective, uh, I think it's I've long been interested in issues of social inequality. There's been a lot of discussion of these issues. Eric and I um, have been discussing these issues also in light of political polarization. So as we discussed, so, you know, as we sort of we get together every now and then and talk about them. We felt that uh, we needed to sort of dissect it with this book and and talk about it and and, uh, shine a light on it. And not only just from one perspective, but if we want to sort of address polarization, we got to get people from different sides to understand each other better, to have better conversations about these issues.
3: And also I started to realize that each side possesses some wisdom that the other lacks, and that did a lot also to calm My emotional feelings, and I think uh, part of the motivation for a book like this is to try to spread that kind of experience and enable that kind of experience in our own discipline. Maybe we'll get to this at some point, but uh, this is a very unusual book for a discipline like sociology, which tends to lean very hard left. Uh, So just the idea of trying to present both sides and to suggest that they have wisdom that the other lacks is an unusual thing. Uh, But we think an important thing, uh, not just for the discipline, but beyond. And I think it's a way of trying to soothe these uh, intense feelings that exist on both sides.
1: Yeah. Yeah, uh, before we, we get to, uh, some of those conversations within the academy, let's, let's walk through this social order, social justice framework with one of the examples that you use in the book. Um, you, you open with, uh, the summer of 2020, the death of George Floyd and the, and the protests that followed. And then there's a whole chapter about racial inequality. So walk us through what the social order perspective, what the social justice perspective is, and those those points of of tension and and disagreement between them.
3: Yeah. so uh, so thinking of the the George Floyd example, so that puts us in the uh, the the neck of the woods that is about race and racial inequality and racial injustice. And so the uh, the social justice perspective here is, as John said earlier, very tuned into oppression and tends to view racial inequality through that lens. And so the reason there is inequality that some uh, whites have more than blacks and that Hispanics are somewhere in the middle and that Asians, uh, you know, the reason that there's a, distribu- a distribution of inequality is from this perspective, oppression. There's some, something going on, something being imposed on people that's preventing them from achieving the equality they would otherwise achieve. And so that's the, the, the social justice perspective kernelized. On the social order side, there's, the focus here is on stability and cohesion, group cohesion. And so if you're looking at this from the lens that says everything is, uh, ought to be in, in its place and ought to be balanced against itself uh, and that you want to create a world that is, is orderly and stable, well, then you tend to look at inequality as something more natural that uh, people will have different interests, different abilities, uh, different groups will uh, develop and uh, different cultural uh, tastes and preferences and skills over time. And that those things could lead to different uh, outcomes by race. And that's not a problem from a social order perspective. It's to be expected uh, that, uh, that you won't have complete equality in everything all the time across all race groups. And you can sense, even as I'm saying that, that's a, a way of looking at the world as being orderly, even in its inequality. And so these two, uh, these two perspectives come at the same reality and draw from it very different lessons and therefore have very different policy preferences when it comes to how you change things to become more equal and how far you want to go.
4: Toward doing that, Yeah, just to build on what Eric said, um, I think from the social order perspective, it's not that no change is ever needed, but they wanted to see it more incrementally, carefully, so that you don't disrupt things too much. So the concern with the um, protests after George Floyd wasn't all necessarily just that no change is needed. But as the protests grew and there were uh, some riots across the country, that's where when you heard a lot of people from the social order perspective expressing greater concern. It's that, OK, maybe there are some things that need to be done, but this is not the way to do them with uh, riots that are creating a lot of chaos and social disorders, destroying property. So you see a different focal concern there. So when they're reacting to the same sets of circumstances. Mm
1: -hmm. So, John, you mentioned something at the beginning of the conversation that that has been going through my mind as we've been talking through this example, and that is sometimes in history there's been more social order than social justice and vice versa. But I think people coming from the social justice perspective would say that there's never been a time in history when we've had more social justice than social order, and that itself is part of the problem.
4: Uh, well, so I guess uh, you know social justice or social injustice manifests, manifests itself in different ways in history. So I would say a classic example of when social justice perhaps went too far. Uh, you know, again, this is all uh, opinions. Is let's say in the French Revolution, uh, you take that a time in history when there was a very oppressive, sort of uh, essentially kind of a feudal system, a monarchy, and there was a lot of resentment. Uh, building from below about inequality and there was it was essentially a social justice movement right it had many aims that we would that we could see why they wanted to fight the oppression from above but they had a sense of that they could sort of construct a society almost from anew it had very utopian kinds of visions for the future and in the chaos that came from this complete upheaval of society you had thousands of people dying and eventually social order was only essentially restored once you know Napoleon came to power, and the monarchy, in a monarchy, in a different sense, uh, not as oppressive, was, was restored. So I think that's an example where people could see that uh, maybe social justice was a time when it, it went too far, when it tries to think that you can re-engineer society in such a way and do away with every single uh, tradition, some which may be pernicious and harmful. You know, a feudal aristocracy, whereas some elements that that are necessary for a, a society to function at all.
3: Yeah, I'd add related to what John is saying is that it's um it's tempting to think that uh, social justice has been on the back burner or something along those lines, uh, but you could look at the last, and I think the, John's example starts in this period. Look at the period since the Enlightenment as the beginning of a social justice movement that has been you know, spreading in the West for 300 or so years, and that it has made an enormous amount of progress in that direction. One of the characteristics of the social justice orientation is that it wants change fast. It's never satisfied with uh, the current amount of change. Why? Because people are suffering people are oppressed. How can we just sit still knowing that they're suffering around us? And so it never seems like enough. But if you look at it over the, uh, the, the longer arc, and I think Martin Luther King said something like, uh, the, the moral arc of the universe bends toward justice. And if you look at it over the, the period that we would say, you know, beginning in the late 16 and 1700s, that's a story that's very easy to tell. And so there's a lot of success that those on the social justice side could see and claim. Uh, But again, there's something in the tendency to hold that position that wants more and wants faster. And so it tends to feel disappointed even amidst its successes.
1: Yeah, and and we're seeing and, and certainly have seen all kinds of government institutions wrestle with this, right? What is their role in helping to Ease some of these tensions, or to to adjust those ratios between social order and social justice. I'm thinking about the um, Supreme Court affirmative action decision over the summer. Mm-hmm. So, given what you described earlier about the the racial inequality and the you know varying perspectives between social order and social justice on that, uh, what do you make of what what the Supreme Court is doing here? Do you see that as their effort to, uh, you know? I don't want to say tip the scales because that makes it sound like it's some kind of rigged system, but to, to intervene in, in some way to, to change the, the equilibrium here.
4: Well, I would say the debate about affirmative action, you know, has that we can learn a lot by using the social justice, social order framework in the sense that affirmative action was devised as a way to try to engineer equity, equal outcomes uh, across groups, which is uh, a central concern for social justice. That's how they see fairness. Right. So to the extent that we don't have people equally represented in institutions such as Ivy League universities or highly ranked public universities, you know, the, the defendants, I guess, in the case, were Harvard and University of North Carolina. So to the extent that we don't see groups equally represented, that means that we have an, we have an unfair system and so that we, we need to actively do, try to achieve equity. Those from the social order perspective, though, are wary of attempts to engineer equal outcomes, and also they have a different sense of what fairness is. They don't see fairness necessarily, not just in terms of equal outcomes, but are people treated equally in a process? Because they see this as the way you promote social co- cohesion, essentially, and so that's why they tend to be against uh, affirmative action uh, because it's not well. It gives uh, you know points to people based on, on their background in this case, race. So that's where we see the tension between social justice and social order. It's about uh, they perceive fairness in very different ways,
3: right? And and beyond that uh, the decision, or beyond just the the details of the decision, policies like affirmative action, while they are aimed at increasing justice by, as John said, increasing equity, they do so at a cost. And we may not find it pleasant to recognize that cost, but something like an affirmative action policy is a zero-sum game, right? Uh, And so some people have to be treated uh, unfairly for other people to be treated better than fairly and that creates disorder it creates resentment it causes people to lose their sense of legitimacy in institutions if you're uh, the institutions that are supposed to be running things are designed to treat some people unfairly in order to help others this is destabilizing from a social order perspective and the social order folks feel that. In the same way, the social justice folks feel the, uh, the the suffering of those who currently have less for reasons that are historical and outside of their control. Uh, so you can look at the Supreme Court decision as uh, if you're thinking of social order and social justice as a way of trying to rebalance this. Um, now, of course, the decision doesn't produce a solution. Maybe we could talk about that later. But it's uh, it definitely um, is an attempt to or one of the results of it could be to increase people's sense of the legitimacy in the system if it's treating everyone fairly, which would promote order yeah. in the system.
1: So one thing that that comes up fairly often when we're talking about these kinds of things in a in a political sense is the notion of asymmetry, right? So things are not there's People are are accused of both sidesism, or that's kind of you're you're equating. You know, you're saying that people who rushed the Capitol on January 6th are on the same plane as people who participated in the riots the, of the in, in the in the summer of 2020. So, you know, people, as I said, in, in the political space are trying to grapple with how much this asymmetry should matter or be taken in, into consideration. I wonder if you thought about that as you were weighing the, you know, social order, social justice framework.
3: So we're we're not saying that anything goes right uh, that's not our uh, that's not our our position at the same time i think we lean toward let's hear it out you know i think the idea that some perspectives are too dangerous to hear is itself a very dangerous idea and so I think we would lean toward, you know, not worrying less about both sidesism and worrying more about suppressing points of view because they are somehow problematic. I'm using air quotes again, and that would be more of a concern. At least uh, I'll speak for myself, for me, and uh, maybe John has a thought about it too.
4: Well, I think you're right, Jenna, that there is a lot of whataboutism, you know, in debates. They point to the worst actors on the other side often, which which again isn't very helpful in understanding. The typical viewpoint of someone on the other side versus the extreme person on the other side. And I think asymmetries occurred in different ways in different spaces. Sometimes you'll have in, in some spaces where you see sort of, let's say, views on the right dominate maybe in some state legislatures and in other places, uh, more social justice voices uh, dominate. So you'll you'll always have some of that. But, uh, you know, I certainly agree with Eric that we should leave enough room in all spaces just to adhere different viewpoints and uh, and especially sort of the reasonable versions of of the different sides are are out there, you know.
1: Well, and and one of those places as you were were mentioning earlier, where you might say leans too heavily on on social justice in your conception, is the academy. Or you know, obviously, every university is is different, and it's difficult to paint them with with a broad brush. But folks certainly have, and it, it's generally that you know they they are more oriented toward justice, and I don't think you would. Disagree? You, you make the case for more viewpoint diversity. So, yeah, talk about, about that. One, like what, again, viewpoint diversity is a term that often gets thrown around a lot. So how do you define it? And then, you know, what would you like to see happen within higher education?
4: Well, I could start briefly, at least. Part of it is that me and Eric come from the standpoint is that each side has some wisdom that the other can learn from. And actually, the tension between the two is often a good thing and too much of one or the other in a given circumstance doesn't necessarily produce the right outcome so we discussed that earlier on so i think uh, this is where in the university where it's it would it's often useful to have different viewpoints because if we want to increase our understanding of this world you need to have people push back on each other this happens you know in the in the hard sciences when a new theory comes up and you know, we had uh, Einstein's relativity built on challenge something from the past, and then we had quantum mechanics. Not that I know much about these fields that <laughs> <laughs> sort of t- disprove I'm <laughs> disprove what was before. But likewise, in the social sciences, when we're trying to learn more about our world, it's important to have ideas challenged. And sometimes they're challenged unsuccessfully, and that's perfectly fine. But I think this is where, if we see one of the goals of the university is to increase our understanding of our world this is where uh, different viewpoints is uh, is helpful and shouldn't be you know viewed in a in a negative light in that way and also just the last thing i'll say is when i teach my own classes on social problems I'll, i'd like to have students at least consider different viewpoints because this helps develop their critical thinking skills that's what we're all about in the liberal arts and of course they might come to whatever conclusion they come to and that's perfectly fine and that's what we uh, expect of our students, but I don't like hand feeding them that this is um, uh, this is necessarily the truth when it could be an issue which which is contested to some extent
3: yeah, I too teach the value of uh, viewpoint diversity I consider it a value, and in fact, I consider it extremely uh, troubling that the term is troubling right because viewpoint diversity simply means let's allow each other to have different viewpoints, and let's not leave the table because of that. And that some people seem to have have recast viewpoint diversity as some kind of Trojan horse for conservatism is, uh, I don't know what to call it. It's, it's It's a PR campaign that is not grounded in what seemed to me like core values of a democratic society. I don't think you can uh, villainize viewpoint diversity and maintain democratic deliberation.
1: So just curious there, Eric, do you, so you said the word balance several times, but I didn't hear you use the word compromise. I wonder, do you see balance and compromise as as separate and and how, if at all, do you see them fitting together?
3: Yeah, uh, compromise is a fine word to me. I think people don't like it. It sounds like defeat. Um, and so I tend to <laughs> avoid it. Uh, but in the end, if you've got people who are strongly committed to their different points of view, sometimes you have to just trust that each side possesses a wisdom the other lacks, and be willing to compromise, and uh, hopefully not see it as uh, as a devastating defeat.
4: I'll only add to what Eric said that so it's important to you know to come to seeing the wisdom in in the different sides. And I think what this can also help, and we've talked about this before, is we're very concerned about polarization in society. So we want to find a way to have good and productive conversations about these social problems. And so we're hoping that our book contributes to that. And again, that doesn't mean that on every issue, the, the answer is always in the exact middle. Sometimes on some issues, we do need a lot more social justice. There's too much sort of hierarchy and, and structure that uh, is not helpful and then uh, other times uh, we, might, we might find the opposite. But let's have a conversation about these things. That's what we thinks uh, uh, important.
1: Well, uh, your book is, is very readable, um, very easy to help understand some of these problems that we face. I hope listeners will pick it up and give it a read. And I thank both of you for joining us today. Well,
3: thank you, Jenna, for having us. Yeah, thank you, Jenna.
0: Well, thank you, Jenna. That was um, really a a, a really terrific interview. And, you know, there's one point I think I want to get back to. But I wanted to just kind of start with, you know, we mentioned it in the front part about this, this question of where do these differences come from? You know, to talk about them as intuitions, it does really kind of, you know, brings to mind the idea that these are somehow innate or that we kind of are born with them or that they are You know, dispositions. Right. But, you know, it's it's pretty obvious, I think. And I don't think they're going to dispute this, that when you look at people's circumstance in life, you you kind of get a a, you know, people tend to line up one way or the other. Right. So if you are wealthy and and well-established and your life is going well, then obviously you're going to have an incentive to Keep things the same to keep things stable, and and it would seem to me that that is going to kind of make it you more likely to prefer social order, and conversely, if you've experienced society in a way in which you've experienced oppression, um, you know whether you be you know um, LGBTQ or whether you be you know um, African American or you know some kind of other group, a poor person, you name it. You're going to have a much different experience of stability and of order. And so, of course, you're going to want to be more open to the social order ideal. And so I just I think this question of, you know, where does this come from? How does what does it mean and how do we rightly understand it? You know, it's it is complicated, but I think it's it's essential to kind of figuring out, you know, what we do about this.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, there is a social dimension to this. And the thing is, is that there is no one person who is always located in a position of power or on the top of hierarchies every single time, nor are there people who are located on every, you know, bottom hierarchy every single time. So, you know, we've all experienced power and powerlessness, but we also know that there are some people who have greater experiences of oppression, of exclusion, of marginality. And we might expect those people to be more likely to align with the social justice framework. And just as you said, you know, those who find themselves in more powerful positions um, where the status quo is looking real good for them, we might expect them to feel, you know, uh, be more aligned with, uh, have a greater probability of being aligned with the social order. And I just also want to say, though, that this is one of the reasons why higher education is so important, is because college especially, and I've really been trying to think about this, and I'm looking for someone to tell me, Another case or where I'm wrong is that college is one of the few places where you are shoulder to shoulder with people who are just not like you, Mm -hmm. where people show up from, I mean, I have the good fortune of working at Duke and when I was at Penn State too, there are people from all over the world, from all walks of life. And so that education component serves to broaden people's horizons and perspectives, I'm only saying this because during the interview there is this kind of notion that academics and academia leans liberal and leans toward the social justice idea but I think that's per- partially because when people are exposed to the circumstances of other people's lives in real way and find themselves in proximity or um in allyship with people that are not like them or people that have faced marginalization they are more likely to note and notice the unfairness of it all and the contradictions of meritocracy, of, you know, of liberty and egalitarianism and all of the things that we say that we want and don't necessarily have. I had a a little bit of hard time, or let me say this, I really have to wrestle with this kind of idea that social order and social justice can be put on an equal moral footing, at least in um, a real-world way. I can think abstractly about it, but when our examples are George Floyd and Me Too, and the two intuitions here for me are not morally equivalent because one perspective tends to be held by people who are uh, people with power. And the other perspective tends to be held by people without power. So yeah, I guess the last thing I would say, and I don't normally go on like this, but I cannot help myself, is that for me, I think actually this this kind of, these two um, ideas are not, social order and social justice are not as cut and dry. I
0: think that's a, um, a really good uh, transition to the the one other point that I, I really want to get to, and it's something that all three of us kind of highlighted uh, in the interview. Both you and I, Candace, were like, Jenna, that's a really good question <laughs> about when is the social justice intuition, the motivation, conception, when has that ever been ascended, right? I mean, it's all about you know, structures are about social structures are about power and people with power create them. Right. And they create them in ways to sustain their own power. I mean, there's nothing weird or, you know, I mean, that's not a lefty thing to say. That's just empirical. That's the way it works. Mm -hmm. And so when when Jenna said, when was it? When was it? The social justice conception ever ascended? And they said the French Revolution. And both of us are like, Wait a minute. (laughs) You know, I mean, like, you know, it's not. I mean, there's an argument there. You know, you could say, okay, I guess so. But first of all, I'm not even sure if it works on its own because, you know, there was really. I mean, is social justice the same as just this kind of violent and? really violent <laughs> retribution against the ruling class. Is that what social justice is? I'm not sure. But even so, even if you just accept it, it's 250 years ago, right? And if that's the case, if that's the arg- if that's the shining example you point to, well, then that kind of bespeaks the fact that social justice is really kind of always, you know, a leg down in in this kind of in this world we live in
2: yes agree i think for me there was an implied notion and maybe not intended by john and eric but the example was um one that highlighted notions of disorder and so then it was my my question was is there an idea that social justice and social disorder go together. And similarly then on the other side, does social order and social injustice always go together. So I, I think for me there just needed to be a little bit more care and nuance around the subject of social justice and social order and and the extent to which they overlap the tensions that are there. But and that I I appreciate the the, the discussion of tension, but I, I wish for just a little bit more nuance um, on both sides. I was trying to think of an example of when social justice has been like ascendant. And I, I thought maybe it would be like reconstruction, but even then radical reconstruction did turn formerly enslaved people into Congress people. And that was a lot of change in a little bit of time and, um, okay, yes, then we ended up with Jim Crow for another hundred years. But my point is, is that there, there are moments when a lot of change can be made in a little bit of time. And if people stick with it, right, if people had stuck with Reconstruction, we might be in an, in a totally different place than we are today.
0: Well, I mean, I think what you can take away from this conversation is that this book is full of ideas and concepts and you know ways of framing you know very topical issues that are really thought-provoking and you know I mean I don't know that that you know you and I Candace came down exactly the same on anything except maybe the French Revolution <laughs> but but that's that's um, to the book's credit, right? So thanks to Eric and John for, uh, for coming on for, and for the terrific book and uh, for Jenna for the interview.
2: Um, I'm Chris Bean. I'm Candace Watts-Smith for Democracy Works. Thanks for listening.
1: Democracy Works is a collaboration between the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Public Media. Our editors are Michael Klein, Chris Kugler, Mark Stitzer, and Clint Yoder. Editorial review by Emily Reddy. Additional production support from Andy Grant and Christine Allen. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Democracy Works is a member of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit the democracygroup.org to learn more about our podcast collective devoted to democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.